Now, a question, especially for the younger members of the group this morning. Who knows who Augustus Conant was? Who was he? A Greek god. You're close. Augustus, yes. You're close. But the one who was here was not the Greek god, not by any stretch of anybody's imagination. Who was Augustus Conant? Our founding minister, the first minister here. And I'd like to tell you a part of the story of how he found his way to Geneva. Now, Augustus was not born in the Midwest. He was born in New England, in Vermont, in the year 1811, which was a long, long time ago. His father was a farmer. His father's father was a farmer. His father's father's father was a farmer. And therefore, Augustus was going to be a farmer, too, whether he wanted to be or not. And he wasn't really sure that he wanted to be. Augustus would really have rather gone to school. He was able to learn to read, but he wanted to to do other things as well. All he could do, though, was just read everything he could get his hands on. But he was needed on the farm, and so a farmer he became. But Vermont, how many of you have been to Vermont? Fair number of us. You may know, then, that Vermont is a rough place to try to farm. The thing that grows best in Vermont soil is rocks, especially granite, which makes wonderful monuments but is a little tough on the the teeth. But the Conan family had heard that way, way out in the Wild West, way beyond New York, even further west than Chicago, which was not a very impressive place back in the early 1800s, There was good open land. There was rich soil, reasonable safety because the government was encouraging the native peoples to find a new location. It was an opportunity for anybody who was willing to work hard to go out, stake a claim, and farm the land. So when Augustus was just 22 years old, he decided to go check out the possibilities. Eventually, he staked a claim in Des Plaines, which is northwest of Chicago, and he officially became an Illinois farmer in 1836. His parents moved out to join him. His fiancée, Betsy Kelsey, also came to Illinois. They were married a month before Betsy's 18th birthday. Things were going very well for Augustus as a farmer. He grew to love farming. He liked his neighbors. He loved going into town, and into town would be Chicago, to pick up supplies and to stop at a general store run by the Clark family, who had connections out here in Geneva. And at the Clark's family store, he liked to buy a great big newspaper that was called the Western Messenger. The Western Messenger was even bigger than the Chicago Tribune is now. wasn't that impressive at the time, but it had a lot of Unitarian stuff in it, and he really liked reading that. He thought that was what he would want to be. And he started thinking maybe he'd like to be a Unitarian minister on the side in addition to farming. So he wrote some addresses, and he read them to his friends, and his friends, most of who were from New England, like him, liked listening to him, and then he started calling his addresses sermons. And his neighbors up in Des Plaines and in Wheeling, the little village there, because they knew that he read a lot, and he knew a lot, and he had a real way with words, 
On June 29th of the year 1839, his friends asked him if he would deliver the 4th of July oration or speech at Wheeling just five days later. Well, of course, Augustus said yes. I mean, like a true minister, give him an opportunity to talk and he was going to take it. And for Augustus, it was a short speech, only about 20 minutes long, and it was made even shorter when he tried to deliver it. How many of you have been to a 4th of July picnic? So you sit down on your blankets and you have a great big picnic basket and you open it up and you're, you're eating and maybe you're drinking iced tea or lemonade and someone stands up to give a speech. Are you going to pay a lot of attention? Yeah, probably not. But it was important that there be a big speech and it was Augustus's to deliver. And everyone thought that what Augustus was going to say, they wouldn't have to listen to because they knew it was supposed to be upbeat and Augustus was going to tell them all the wonderful things about the young country of the United States and everything that was good about it. And Augustus did say some of those things. But he also said that the United States had one huge evil that could not be ignored. Now, the year, remember, was 1839, 171 years ago. So who could guess what that evil was that Augustus was so angry about? Slavery. Slavery, yes. And that made Augustus very angry. Well, as soon as the audience realized that he was not going to tell them all the nice, comfortable, happy things, and in fact was going to make them uncomfortable, people started booing and hissing, and stamping their feet, and making so much noise he couldn't continue, because he didn't have one of these at that time. (laughs) Now, he really didn't want to ruin the party for everybody. He just wanted to point out that just because you love your country, and he did, that does not mean that you keep quiet when you know something is wrong. And isn't it a great thing to live in such a country where you not only can, but you must speak out and work to make things better? But nobody wanted to hear that, and they made so much noise that nobody did hear much of that. So you know what he did? He went to Chicago with his manuscript, his handwritten speech, and he found a printer, and he paid to have his oration typed up, and printed, and he took a couple hundred copies and he went all around Wheeling and Displains and all the other villages out there, and he gave a copy of that oration to every farmer, every business, every person he could find. So that oration that the people in Wheeling did not want to listen to was read and passed on to others who passed it on to others by many more people than would have heard it on the 4th of July. And the folks who gave Conant the most support during this time were the Unitarians in Chicago, especially that Clark family who had connections out in Geneva. And we know that in February and May of 1840, just the next year, Augustus came out to Geneva at least three times to preach to the people, probably stood outside and was surrounded by them, but they did not hiss or boo or stamp their feet. So Augustus decided that when the people of Geneva asked him to please come and be their minister, after he'd learned a little bit more about minister stuff, that he would do it. 
So he packed up. He took his wife to stay with her family in Vermont. He went to Harvard in Cambridge, Massachusetts to become a Unitarian missionary. And then in 1842, he and Betsy and their children moved here to Geneva. The congregation gathered and our church was born. In large part because a group of people in Wheeling on the 4th of July would not listen to him. So he went out and he found other people who would. And that was part of how he came here. For quite some time, I have been looking for a copy of that address delivered on the 4th of July in Wheeling, and I didn't find one, but my friend Hillary, who is the minister out at Palatine, did. She found a copy in the Des Plaines Public Library in their historical pamphlets section. She arranged to get it photocopied, and then she sent a photocopy over to me. So she is also doing just what we're doing this morning, celebrating Augustus because Augustus's home area was that Palatine Wheeling Displains area. And he's our minister. And one of these days, I am going to break into the Palatine Church and steal the painting that hangs in one of their big halls, Atherton Hall, that was done for them as a gift from the Atherton family because, well, Bob and Marty were married here, so I don't know why they had to give it to Palatine, but it's a picture of our church with Augustus Conant riding away from it. So, <laughs> so if uh, anyone ever hears of a break-in at the Palatine church from which nothing was stolen except that painting, please give me an alibi. Thank you. <laughs> Well, Hillary Krivchenia sent me the copy of it, and this is the preface that Augustus had placed on the pamphlet. An oration delivered at Wheeling, Cook County, Illinois, July 4, 1839, being the 63rd anniversary of American independence by Augustus H. Conant, farmer. The following address was written without any design for publication. But as it occasioned a considerable hissing, stamping, and uproar, followed by a fruitless attempt to break up the assembly, the author deems it a duty to himself and to the cause of liberty and truth to present it to the public verbatim as it was delivered. The above is his apology for its defects in style and composition of the justness and truth of the sentiments it contains, the public can judge for themselves. I did, for a few brief, insane moments, think the costume might be effective for this. It would have involved cutting the collar off one of my husband's shirts letting out the seams so I could fit into a pair of his trousers, and then rolling the trousers way up 
because Augustus was a farmer after all. Stealing suspenders from somebody in the congregation, and I, I should have remembered, of course Gary wears suspenders, so... And yet, if I had only thought of it, I could have given this to you, and you could have been Augustus. The only thing missing would be a broad-brimmed hat, which, of course, he would have worn to keep the sun out of his eyes so that he could indeed deliver the oration. But picture the farmer in the middle of a group of people all gathered to celebrate with their picnic baskets and their flasks and their children, all figuring it was going to be perfect and happy and everything wonderful. And remember, Augustus Conant was about as tall as I am. And if he weighed 100 pounds soaking wet, that would have been a surprise. Friends and fellow citizens, I rejoice to address you on this occasion of national festivity, of joyful remembrances, of high hopes and hearty congratulations, an occasion well suited to awaken the feelings of kindness and sympathy, of devotion and patriotism in the breast of every American. Man was not made to be the slave of incessant toil, or to live exclusively to private interest. Relaxation and amusement are necessary to his enjoyment and to the perfection of his mental and physical powers. Society is his natural element. The noblest traits of his character are there developed, and the highest joys of his existence are linked with the interests and happiness of his fellow men. Philanthropy and patriotism are innate principles of the soul, and he who would confine his efforts and shut up his love in the lonely dungeon of private interest deserves no higher happiness than a miserable selfishness can afford. The most of us are busied and perplexed with our own affairs from day to day and week to week, to every generous mind, the present is an occasion of purest joy. We can loosen the fetters of the soul and yield ourselves to the kindly influences of social enjoyment and feel that there are common interests and sympathies that unite us as a people and bind us to the great brotherhood of man. He alone knows how to make the most of life, who can make another's bliss his own, who can extend his affections beyond himself and participate in the happiness which animates the world and pervades the universe. The day we celebrate is sacred to liberty wherever the star-spangled banner of American freedom moves in the breeze or the pulse of an American is quickened by a thought of his country. We hail it as the birthday of sentiments and principles which we will be proud to publish and defend to the remotest period of time. It brings with us the recollection of lofty spirits scorning oppression, of high resolves followed by noble deeds of true patriotism, counting no sacrifice too dear to be offered on the altar of liberty. 
When we call to mind the heroes of the revolution, we can say with the proud Roman, who is here so vile he would not be an American? And in view of the bloody conflicts by which our peace and prosperity have been purchased and the high hopes of the founders of our noble institutions, in view of the intelligence and enterprise of our citizens, the beauty of our rivers, the fertility of our plains, and in view of the remembrances of childhood, the mountains and forests, the brooks and valleys, hallowed by the hopes and joys of other years, and more than all, the enjoyment of civil and religious liberty, may we further add, who is here so base that he does not love his country? Who would not defend his country's honor? Who would not blush for his country's crime? Painful as is the task, it is a duty to notice and reprove a wrong, even in our country. Shall we see a stain on our national banner and make no effort to remove it? While we pride ourselves in being the freest and one of the most enlightened nations on earth, shall it be told that a system of oppression and wrong receives the sanction of our laws and millions are crushed under a despotism a thousand times more galling than the British yoke? While the American Declaration of Rights teaches that all men are created free and equal, a system of legalized tyranny is tolerated which not only robs men of their liberty and drags them from the society of friends and kindred at the call of insatiate avarice, but condemns them to the lowest ignorance, crushing the first germ of aspiring thought and inflicting the severest penalties on the individual who should attempt to reflect one ray of intellectual light into the darkened mind. Am I told that the slave enjoys the protection of his master? That he is fed and clothed and provided for in sickness and old age? That he has no perplexing care and is frequently contented and happy? And in fact, that his situation is enviable compared with that of the northern laborer who is driven to toil by poverty and has to struggle with innumerable difficulties to support a dependent family? Is it a son of one of those patriots who would have preferred a lonely cottage whilst blessed with liberty to gilded palaces surrounded with ensigns of slavery? Is it an American who argues thus? Would not the poorest son of New England shed the last drop of his blood sooner than yield his family to slavery? To be torn from his bosom and separated from each other, driven like brutes from their homes to labor, toil, and sweat for the benefit of a southern planter? It is true his life may be one of toil. He may have to struggle with poverty and disappointments but it is not one of hopeless ignorance and despair. 
the consciousness of freedom, the possibility of improvement in his condition cheer him in his labor. He enjoys the protection of the law, the society of his family and friends, the means of intellectual and moral improvement and elevation are within his reach. He may store his mind with the richest gems of literature, and in the gratification of his mental taste, he may enjoy a satisfaction as far superior to anything which wealth or luxury can offer, as the loftiest creations of thought are to the lowest objects of sense. The worst feature in the system of slavery is that it crushes the soul. In order to make the bondage more secure and to prevent all danger from the hope of elevation and the love of liberty, it is necessary to close every avenue through which the knowledge of so debased a condition might reach the mind. Should a man attempt to teach even a free man of color to read in one of our slaveholding communities, he would be immediately fined or imprisoned. What a lamentable fact to hold up to the view of the enlightened nations of the earth. Oh, tell it not to the Sultan of Turkey, nor to the autocrat of Russia, lest they sneer at the name of American freedom. Shall we attempt to shield ourselves by saying that slavery is one of the peculiar institutions of the South with which we have no right to interfere? We belong to the same great national compact, and with Southern institutions we are intimately connected. Our laws require us to deliver up to the oppressor the flying fugitive who has risked his life to obtain his liberty. In the case of insurrection, we are bound, not only by law, but by the ties of national sympathy, to sustain the cause of the oppressor against the oppressed. If we have no right to interfere with Southern institutions, by what right are we bound to sustain and defend them? Though we have no constitutional right to enact laws for other states or to interfere with slavery in a legal point of view, we have a moral and just right to act by moral means and duty to ourselves, to our country, and to the cause of liberty and humility calls for the exercise of this right. It is not merely a few disorganizing, hair-brained, fanatical abolitionists of the North that assert the right of the colored man to his liberty. The spirit of the age, the nature of our institutions, the honor of our country demand the emancipation of the slave. Every sentiment of justice, every feeling of human sympathy, of philanthropy, of patriotism demands it. The noblest spirits in the age, both in Europe and America, re-echo the demand and are uniting their efforts for its accomplishment. Every attempt to stop investigation, to shut the mouths of freemen and prevent discussion, every riot, mob, and murder will but hasten the event. Shall we be terrified by the threat of disunion? The South has everything to fear from such an event, while we have comparatively nothing. 
Shall we be discouraged by the fawning, cringing, craven conduct of northern statesmen who, for the sake of southern support, prove recreant to liberty and justice, who would gag the nation and trample on the right of petition? No! Posterity will cover their names with infamy and consign them to oblivion. While our motto is freedom to the oppressed, while we grasp the weapons of eternal truth and justice and challenge to the fight in the field of free discussion, while our watchword is liberty, our cry shall be onward. But while we contend for principles, let us not abuse men. Let us remember that our southern brethren were born and educated with this abominable system in their midst. Its deformity is far less apparent to them than to those who have never felt the same influences. Vice is a monster of so frightful mien that to be hated needs but to be seen. Yet seen too oft, familiar with her face, we first endure, then pity, then embrace. With the kindest feelings apparent in our conduct, let us point them to its deformity. We need not mention its extremes of cruelty, injustice, and oppression. In its mildest form, it is sufficiently horrible. Appealing to their own love of liberty, their sense of justice and humanity, let us ask whether they will longer support such a system, whether the dictates of sound policy as well as every principle of right does not call for its immediate abolition. The experiment in the British West India Islands fully demonstrates that it is both safe and politic. Notwithstanding many unfavorable circumstances, the public tranquility was not disturbed when the slave became a free man. Statistical documents prove the prosperity of the islands by the vast amount of increase in its exports, and from the best authority we learn that habits of industry, economy, and social order everywhere prevail. In behalf of truth and justice, of liberty and patriotism, of human improvement and happiness, in behalf of philanthropy and religion, we owe an influence to our country and to the world, an influence to be measured only by the strength of the soul and the movements of existence. It is our duty as well as right to exercise the noblest gift of our creator, the powers of reason and the energies of the mind. To reason and to free discussion, we owe all that distinguishes us from the most abject and degraded. Superstition and ignorance, injustice and oppression may well shrink from the light of truth, but as lovers of intelligence and virtue, 
of improvement and freedom, we claim the right to examine every system of civil and religious policy in our country to bring them to the test of truth before the bar of reason. It is the safeguard of that liberty in which we rejoice. It has led us onward to the discovery of the most sublime truths and will continue to elevate us to loftier thoughts and higher attainments. With pleasure, we will now, for a moment, turn our thoughts to our own affairs. We have left the homes of our childhood, the friends of our youth. We have suffered the privations, perplexities, and hardships incidental to the settlement of a new country, and the prospect before us is enough to animate and quicken every thought and action. If power and action are, as has been said, the two halves of human felicity, we may well congratulate ourselves on our situation in this broad and fertile valley. In the midst of so much action, growth, and progress, it is hardly possible to escape the all-pervading spirit of life and energy, ambition and enterprise. As a fine writer observed, if there is any power in a man's nature, this Western country will bring it out. And what nobler aim for this exercise of our best powers can we ask than is here presented? To exert our influence in forming the character of such a mighty nation as is springing up here to bend the tree while yet it is a twig, to act upon the plant while yet it is a germ. I rejoice to live among free spirits where thought and expression are not molded by the systems and forms of a past century, where intolerance, superstition, and bigotry are not the order of the day. I rejoice to devote the best powers of my nature and the best days of my life to the interests of this, my adopted country, for the elevation, improvement, and happiness of the inhabitants of this valley, I joy to labor. I know it is an extensive field, but it is fast filling with zealous hearts and willing hands and I believe it will yield a rich harvest of intelligence and patriotism, of pure affections and generous sentiments, of lofty aspirations and noble deeds. May the blessing of the great arbiter of all events, the ruler of nations, rest on it and on our common country. May it in truth become the land of liberty, the seat of virtue, the asylum of the oppressed, and the abode of intelligence, righteousness. The list is too long even to begin to make it. But may the blessing of the great arbiter of all events, the ruler of all nations, Rest upon us and all nations as well, that all may indeed become lands of liberty.
seats of virtue, asylums of the oppressed, abodes of intelligence, righteousness, and peace. As I extinguish the flame of our congregation's chalice, take this flame into the chalice of your own heart. Carry it out into the world to light your path that you may lead others in the path of justice, freedom, and peace. Amen.